think it's about time to wrap up the analysis portion of Satanic Introspection, a portion of Paradise Lost by John Milton. And if I remember correctly, it was a while ago, but if I remember correctly, we left off with mankind created, and for him, this world. So, in the last recitation, we ended with that line. And what does that line mean? He said above that, All hope excluded thus, behold, instead of us, outcast, exiled. So who are these outcasts and exiled? These are Satan and all of those fallen angels who have with him been thrown into hell. And instead of them, instead of what Satan would see as the brightest of stars, the pinnacle of creation, because of course what could compare, instead of these beautiful angels, God created mankind, and for him, this world. So I'm imagining Satan here feeling like even though God has done, done no one wrong, he hasn't mistreated anyone. Satan has even said this at, at the beginning of this, of this portion. But even though that's the case, why would God create the crown of creative, ener creative energies for such a lowly creature as man. And I'm going out on a limb here, but I've heard it said that the creation story in the Islamic religion is a bit different than in the Christian interpretation. In the Islamic tradition, it's said, I've heard, that Satan's greatest fault was not pride in and of itself, and of course all of this can be argued, and I'm probably getting it very wrong, but in the way that I've heard it interpreted, Satan's main sin was not pride in relation to the Father. It was a pride of, pride of jealousy, I apologize. <laughs> it was a pride of jealousy because God, in the Islamic tradition, God presented man as second only to himself. And it even goes to the extent of God making the angels bow to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve. And Satan refuses to bow to mankind. And this is his, his fault, his original fault. I find it hard to believe that God would make angels bow to man, but in the Bible it does talk of us in heaven judging angels, so maybe that is the case. But I just find that comparison interesting in relation to this, to this passage here. So, Satan sees mankind as lowly and, un and undeserving of this crown of creation. So where does he go next? Where he goes next is 
the first line of this portion, which is, So farewell hope, and with hope, farewell fear. Okay, so forgive me for making this reference, but what this makes me think of is The Dark Knight Rises by Christopher Nolan. (laughs) Bane says to Batman something along, along the lines of, There is no true despair without hope. And heck, maybe he even got it from this poem. Because this seems like such a such a distinct um, reflection of that idea is that once we once we abandon hope, I see I see I see that is true. We do we are unburdened with the fear of losing that thing that we're hopeful about. If that doesn't make any sense, maybe another way to say it would be that would be that we have this expectation. We have we have this expectation of something being given or something happening or ourselves becoming something. This high ideal of the future or the present. But once we once we let go of hope, then fear also kind of goes out the window or or at least we can believe that it does i i have a hard time believing that we can live without hope in something or else we wouldn't be living if we didn't have the hope that food would be nourishing then we wouldn't eat and someone may say that it's merely instinctual that we eat. Someone can be completely void of hope and still eat, still walk, still go outside, get sun, get sunlight. But I think with the utter, with the utter lack of hope, I think we go into a kind of stasis. And there are people that I've heard of that get to a point of, a point of complete stasis in their mental in their minds to the point where they won't even focus their eyes on certain things. There are chemical, neurochemical di- diseases that produce this, but I have, a, I have a feeling that's what an utter lack of hope would look like. So here, farewell hope with hope, farewell fear. Farewell remorse, all good to me is lost. So he's saying with without hope and without fear, there is no remorse. So what is the connection of hope and fear and remorse? I'm tempted to say, and this is the <laughs> this is the weakness of doing this stuff off the cuff. I don't really plan for these things, but I'll say just right now what I'm thinking the connection is there is that hope and fear require a more or less objective object that we create that hope and fear from. So if if I'm taking a test, so let's say let's say I'm taking a math test. 
Would I be hopeful if there were no objective standards for grading the test? If one of the questions is 2 plus 2, and the teacher, none of the administrators, none of the test, test makers believe there's any objective real answer to that question, then why would I hope for having a correct answer? I may, I may do it anyway, just from the off chance that whatever I write down may be the right answer. But if there's no clear third standard that's present above the test taker and the test administrator, then there's no hope to be found in completing a test like that. And in the same way, I would say there's no fear. If you're expected to get the right answer, then there might be a fear of getting the wrong answer. But if there's no objective right answer, then there's no reason for fear in whatever you write down. You could draw a picture of a duck. And yes, two plus two would equal rubber, du rubber ducky. Luckily, we have these standards in our lives. Our own standards as well as natural law. And standards that are formed by society. Social constructs, we call them. We have these standards that we hold above our interactions and our lives, our expectations, our hopes, our fears. So there, there's a ground for them. But without these things, let's go back to the test analogy. Would you feel remorse if your teacher came back to you and said, this is, this is not the I, I, I won't say correct in this analogy, but this wasn't the question that I, this isn't the answer that I was looking for. Would you feel remorse for getting the question that he wasn't looking for if there was no standard for getting the correct answer? I, I would hope not. But, so, all that to say, without a, an objective standard, whether social construct or natural law based we don't have hope fear remorse on to the next line oh and and i should say that bringing that all together i think one of the central themes of this this introspection is that satan does not see himself as someone who is subject to third standards objective standards so, these objective feelings, these reactions, these subjective feelings, I should say, in relation to objective standards, he doesn't have them, or, or at least he feels like he should not have them, which this goes into another central theme, is that Satan is not an, is not an objective storyteller here. He's trying to convince himself himself of so many realities that just are not realities. He does hope. He does fear. He does feel remorse. And we've seen that time and time again for each of these examples throughout this poem. I think that's the point here. He's lying to himself, and he's also lying to existence. Next line. Evil be thou my good, 
So, the line above. All good to me is lost. Evil be thou my good. So, all good to me is lost. He's saying that any standard from which to choose whether to act in this way or that way is gone. So, I would, I would like to say that he's not choosing evil. He's just getting rid of standards. So evil and good are nonsensical at, at that point in your conceptualization if you're playing this game. But as we see a little later on, that is not the case. I should say, <laughs> I should say earlier on it was not the case because he's clearly acting in relation in antithesis to the good, which is the will of God in this story. And I'd personally say in reality, but in this story. <laughs> so, evil be thou my good, by thee, by thee at least divided empire with heaven's king I hold. By thee at least divided empire with heaven's king I hold. So Satan is assuming that at, at least half of creation is or can be made his own. In other words, half of creation is evil. We see this kind of um, this kind of Gnostic idea of these two equal powers of good and evil, good and good and good and evil. Uh, this gets complicated because where's the standard on top of these two to say which one is evil and which one is good? But in Satan's conceptualization here, it's it's pretty Gnostic. He's saying that if he does, if he acts as a reactionary to the good, to the will of God, then half of the world, if not more, will follow him. And he repeats this in the next line here by saying, By thee, and more than half perhaps will reign. Perhaps more than half will follow him into a reactionary slavishness to that reaction. Next line. As man ere long, and this new world shall know. Man, that line gives me chills. <laughs> it's one of the it's one of the best endings to a speech. I would imagine. And he's saying that yes, he's we can we can picture Satan turning into the snake in the Garden of Eden and slithering towards Adam and Eve as they're as they're tending the garden. And that's actually the the graphic uh by Gustav Dorr that I used for the illustration for this episode. And it's a it's a very interesting image and powerful line okay i kind of wish that i had some planned out conclusion to this 
to this in, to this introspection, um, I was actually thinking about going through my hard copy of the book and outlining and doing circling, highlighting, all that stuff. Um, I did do the underlining, but I never planned out podcast. It definitely deserves it, but I couldn't give it to it right now. To be honest, I wanted to get on to what I'm doing next. And I think it's a great, um, a great symbolic repetition of what's described in the creation story of Paradise Lost. And that will be The Music of the Ainur by J.R.R. Tolkien, part of the Cimmerillion. I'll see you during that one.